Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, welcome to Upbeat Live. My name is Christopher Russell. Thank you for coming out on this gorgeous Sunday afternoon to hear the talk. On the podium today is our former associate conductor and Dudamel Fellow. Her name is Mirga Grazinita Tila. She has had a rather meteoric rise in the world of conducting. She is currently the music director of the wonderful city of Birmingham Symphony in England. And that is um, one of the best orchestras in England, but also it's proven to be um, a wonderful place for conductors to also go on to more um, um, prestigious orchestras. For instance, Sir Simon Rattle was their former music director, and he has moved on to the Berlin Philharmonic, and she succeeded Andres Nelsons, who is now the conductor of the Boston Symphony. So with uh, the great work Mirga's doing there in Birmingham, we'll see uh, uh, where she goes with her career. She's only 32 years old. And earlier this year, she became the first female conductor to sign an exclusive recording contract with the prestigious Deutsche Grammophon. So beginning today's concert is Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. The soloist for that is Patricia Kopachinskaya, and she has been called the, uh, the wild child of the violin. She tends to have very unique views of standard pieces, and you'll certainly be hearing that today with the Tchaikovsky Concerto, a very compelling performance. I was actually at last night's concert. She is also known for playing barefoot, and I think she will do that again this afternoon. To close the program is Debussy's La Mer, and then between that is the latest in the LA Phil's commissions for their centennial season, and it's a new work called Spira, a concerto for orchestra, and the composer is Unsuk Jin. In introducing the program, I'll just take it straight in program order. So that starts with the Tchaikovsky. But I want to back up a few centuries and talk about how composers got paid over time. If we look back at the Baroque and in the classical era, large amount of composers got their money through the church and having church jobs. For example, Bach is someone who spent most of his life earning money through working at different churches in Germany. As we move through the classical period, we start to see composers then get a little more royal patronage. Haydn is the perfect example there, who worked for decades at the court of Esterhazy. By the time we get to Beethoven, he was one who sort of broke the mold. In fact, you could almost call him the first freelance composer, he didn't really have a steady job. He did receive some royal patronages. They did give him some money to commission pieces. But for the most part, Beethoven earned his money through performing and through commissions, or through, as I just said, people asking him to write compositions. He didn't do as much teaching as, say, Mozart. Mozart did a good number of teaching, uh, teaching students as well. Now, that model has actually held to the modern day. So then you have an unusual case like Tchaikovsky, who had a benefactor, someone who just simply gave him money to compose. And her name was Nadezhda von Meck. She gave Tchaikovsky money over a number of years in his life just simply to compose. But they had the strange condition that they never meet, and they both met that condition. They never met in their lifetime. This collaboration began right around the time that 
Tchaikovsky was writing the violin concerto, the piece that starts today's program. It was also right around the same time of a less uh, fortunate time in his life, and that was his disastrous marriage. He'd received a letter from a woman named Antonina Milyukova, who claimed that she was one of his former students. She was madly in love with him and wanted to marry him. Tchaikovsky confessed that he didn't remember her at all because he had actually taught multiple classes, so he, he didn't remember her being in one of his classes. But he did accept the proposal of marriage. I'm not quite sure why. It might have been possibly to hide his own homosexuality and to have this, um, uh, this facade of a marriage. But before long, he realized that he had made the wrong choice. And honestly, he didn't deal with it very well because shortly after he got married, he decided to walk waist deep into the freezing Moscow River in hopes of catching pneumonia and dying just to escape the marriage. So when he told Antonina this, she greeted it with indifference. <laughs> Within a year, though, he suggested getting a divorce. At first she accepted, and then she said no. So then for Tchaikovsky, he said, well, separation then is the way to go. And didn't work out as well as Tchaikovsky had planned either because when he got a new apartment, Antonina decided to rent the one exactly one floor above his. So it wasn't really much of a separation at all. Musically, though, right around this time, he was creating some of his most well-known pieces like the Fourth Symphony, Capriccio Italien, the 1812 Overture, and the work you're going to hear today, which is the Violin Concerto. Shortly after he got married, he took a tour of Europe, which was actually not unusual for artists to do, and he settled in Switzerland for about a month or so, and it was there in Switzerland that he began and pretty much completed the entire violin concerto. He had written it for the great violinist Leopold Auer, probably the premier virtuoso of the day. Auer was also a very well-respected teacher. Among his students were Nathan Milstein and Yasha Heifetz, two of the great violinists of the 20th century. Interestingly, though, Auer's great-nephew also became very well-known in the 20th century as one of the great modernist composers. His name was Georgi Ligeti, and so there's a connection between Ligeti and Tchaikovsky. While Auer did perform some of, or, yeah, some of Tchaikovsky's chamber music, he wasn't too thrilled when he got the copy of the Violin Concerto. He lamented that Tchaikovsky didn't consult him on it, and then he deemed the piece unplayable. He never did play the piece. Later in his life, Auer did walk back those comments a little bit. He said he never really said it was unplayable, but he said this. What I did say was that some of the passages were not suited to the character of the instrument, and that, however perfectly rendered, they would not sound as well as the composer had imagined. Perhaps this was later in his life, he realized the concerto was indeed playable. It was becoming quite popular, even in Auer's lifetime. The work was premiered in 1881. The violinist was Adolf Brodsky. The orchestra was the venerable Vienna Philharmonic. Brodsky apparently knew the part very, very well, but for reasons that aren't clear, the Vienna Philharmonic were either under-rehearsed or poorly rehearsed by the conductor because the conductor at the premiere made the very strange decision of having the orchestra play the entire concerto at the softest possible dynamic level. So everything was soft. So it didn't really support the soloist at all. 
Needless to say, the premiere was a disaster. However, out of that, we have one of the greatest bad reviews in history, and this comes from a gentleman, notorious Viennese critic named Edward Hanslick, and here's what he said about the premiere. The Russian composer Tchaikovsky is surely no ordinary talent, but rather an inflated one. Obsessed with posturing as a man of genius, lacking discrimination and taste. The same can be said for his new, long, and ambitious violin concerto. For a while, it proceeds soberly, musically, and not mindlessly. But soon, vulgarity gains the upper hand and dominates until the end of the first movement. The violin is no longer played. It is tugged about, torn, beaten black and blue. The adagio, second movement, is well on the way to reconciling us and winning us over. But it soon breaks off to make way for a finale that transports us to the brutal and wretched jollity of a Russian festival. We see a host of savage, vulgar faces. We hear crude curses and smell the booze. In the course of a discussion of obscene illustrations, Friedrich Vischer once maintained that there were pictures which one could see stink. Tchaikovsky's violin concerto for the first time confronts us with the hideous idea that there may be compositions that stink to the ear. Well, he kind of liked the second movement if you have a little silver lining in that, uh, in that review. But it was not long after this that other violinists took up the concerto and it entered the repertoire and has never left the repertoire. And it's considered to be, as you all know, one of the greatest and most brilliant virtuoso showpieces in the entire repertoire. Now the concerto itself begins with this melody. you definitely want to enjoy that melody because you never hear it again. <laughs> it only appears in the first couple of measures and that's it. And strangely, it, it never comes back for the rest of the concerto. Shortly after this, the main first theme comes in and then the violinist's first entrance is this. Tchaikovsky was a composer, you could say, you could say the guy knew how to write a tune. He knew how to write these melodies that really stick in your mind. And the question is, well, why? Why, do why are Tchaikovsky's melodies so familiar? If, if I asked all of you to come up with a few melodies that Tchaikovsky composed, you could probably do it very easily off the top of your head. There's actually a fairly straightforward answer as to why Tchaikovsky's melodies are more memorable than other composers, and that's because many of his melodies are built on what's called the scale, or stepwise motion. When you have a scale and the notes next to them, that's called stepwise motion. Those notes are much easier to stick in your mind than those with bigger leaps in them. Tchaikovsky's melodies are almost always based on a scale of some sort. The first um, melody I play through that the violin has is a little bit. There's a few leaps like here, but they're not very large leaps at all. The second theme of this sounds like this. There's only three notes in that melody. They're all next to each other on the, on the piano, G sharp, A, and B. And even when he repeats it at a higher level, 
it's still three notes, but they're just moved up higher on the piano. And that's really one of the main reasons why Tchaikovsky's tunes tend to stick in your mind more than, say, uh, Schoenberg. I mean, nothing against Schoenberg, who was really a great composer, but, uh, but his melodies, when he wrote them, tended to be much more angular. They tended to have much more um, leaps in them. So now I'm going to take that first melody that the violin plays, and I'm going to show you how Tchaikovsky uses it throughout the movement. Here, for example, is one of the orchestral interludes. He takes that melody, which starts very quietly, and then it's presented as a great fanfare. And here's a part later on, and this part also shows the virtuosity that the violin has to do. All these violin notes you hear are actually all played by the violin in, in what's called double and triple stops, where they're playing multiple things on different strings. As you listen to this, you'll hear on top that melody floating, but underneath is this sort of complex web that Tchaikovsky's built around it. When Tchaikovsky wrote the second movement, his friends commented to him that it really wasn't up to the quality of the first and the third movement. Tchaikovsky actually agreed with this, and he dashed off very quickly a new second movement for it, but not letting the original movement go to waste, he recycled it in a piece for, actually three pieces for violin and piano, the first movement of which is called, in English translation, memory or souvenir of a dear place. So the new movement that he wrote, which is the one you, you always hear, is called Canzonetta. This is an unusual title. It dates from probably around the 1500s in Italian secular song. These songs were noted by their rather calm and serene nature. It's very rarely used in orchestral music. In fact, Tchaikovsky is by far the most famous example. You have others, like Barber, Samuel Barber has a piece called Canzonetta for Oboe and Strings, and Sibelius also has a piece, but otherwise very few composers have used that title. In this movement, Tchaikovsky takes the full orchestra and then pairs it down to a smaller orchestra, you could say like a chamber orchestra, featuring mostly the woodwind section. Here's an example where you hear an interlude with the flute solo and then the violin comes in shortly after.
there's not a single time in this movement where the orchestra plays at forte or at a loud dynamic level. This actually may be one of the reasons why the Viennese critic liked this movement at the premiere because it actually played pretty closely to the way Tchaikovsky had intended it though. The violin does have some places where it is marked forte. However, our soloist today, Patricia Kopachinskaya, plays the entire movement piano. She published a recent online article about her reasoning for this, and she's done some extensive research on it, and she's uncovered that this movement and possibly the whole concerto was inspired by Tchaikovsky's infatuation for a young man named Josef Kotek. Kotek was actually with Tchaikovsky in Switzerland while he was writing the concerto. Kotek was a violinist and was able to play some of these, um, some passages of it for Tchaikovsky while he was composing it. The relationship never developed, however, if it did, it certainly would have been forbidden at that time. Kopachinskaya also comments that, quote, even in today's Russia, this has to be kept secret so as not to risk trouble. So she says, by playing the whole thing pianissimo, she does it in memory of this and other secret relationships. And she also said in the article, sometimes she wears black when she plays this concerto, and last night she did that as well. Although the canzonetta is actually the second version of this uh, of the concerto. According to her, she said there's evidence that this movement is based on an old French folk song, which is called Where Did You Go, My Beautiful Love? It's likely that Tchaikovsky knew this folk song when he was growing up in Russia because they had a French governess, and the governess taught the family some of the songs that she knew when she was growing up, and part of the text says this, to whom shall I confess my torment and my sorrow's secret? I have to go to the woods singing with a dying voice. In a letter to his benefactor, Nadezhda von Meck, he commented on this movement and he said, what poetry and what longing is in these veiled and secretive sounds? So it's also worth pointing out that the first version of it was later renamed Memory of a Dear place for his memories of writing this piece in Switzerland. So clearly there's a hidden meaning here and Kopachinskaya through her research may have uncovered what that is. After about six minutes, the whole orchestra breaks in with the finale and the finale is in a form which we call rondo form and it's been used for centuries and the way it's constructed is fairly simple. You have a theme, then you have a contrasting theme, the original theme comes back, and then there's another contrasting theme, and this alternates for as many times as the composer would like. Tchaikovsky has chosen three themes with which he builds this movement. And here's part of, towards the beginning of it, you'll hear a couple of the melodies here. one of the other melodies of the piece. This one is characterized by having 
bits of melody that are tossed around to different members of the orchestra, including the violin soloist. concerto lasts about 35 minutes. The first movement of it is by far the longest. It lasts about as long as the other two movements combined. This last movement is about nine minutes or so, and then shortly after this excerpt I played, it just drives to what's surely one of the most thrilling endings of any violin concerto. That will take you to intermission, and after intermission, is a brand new piece. It's called Spira, a concerto for orchestra. And as I mentioned at the outset, it's one of the commissions that the LA Phil asked of composers around the world to write in honor of their centennial season, which is this season. The composer is a woman named Unsuk Jin, and she was born in South Korea. But before, actually probably in her 20s, she moved to Germany, and there she studied what the composer actually mentioned earlier, Georgie Ligeti. She credits Ligeti as being one of her main influences. From that time, after her schooling, she has become one of the most prominent contemporary classical composers on the scene today. Her works have been played and or commissioned by many of the world's great orchestras like the Berlin Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony, and our own LA Philharmonic. I remember in Gustavo Dudamel's first season here, he uh, performed one of her works on one of his very first concerts. So the work you're gonna hear today, again, is called Spira, and that word comes from the Latin word meaning spiral. That is something that uh, had influenced her and the way that she sort of spins out one idea from another as the piece goes on. Now obviously since this is a premiere, can't play any excerpts for you, but what I do have is some excerpts from another orchestral piece that she wrote, which is called Rokana, or Room of Light. In this you get a pretty good idea of what her sound world is. I have two excerpts for you, first of which is a rather slow and contemplative part. Here's a contrasting excerpt. It's a faster and very active part.
both of these excerpts, I hear an influence of both Ligeti, actually, in the first example, and then of some of the later orchestral pieces by Pierre Boulez. But hearing her work in totality, she does have her own voice, and she said this about writing for orchestra. She said, the orchestra can be presented as one entity, a super orchestra, but also in various chamber-like combinations, and one can also highlight a certain section or even single musicians as soloists. So she enjoys the flexibility that she can get with writing for orchestra. The um, LA Phil is grateful to them because they sent me a score that I was able to study in preparation for the talks today, and I was at last night's concert. And what you'll hear in this piece, first of all, it begins with the sound of what we call bowed vibraphones. So vibraphones in the percussion section, and then they have double bass bows, and then they scrape it along the edge of uh, some of the keys on the vibraphone, and it produces a very high-pitched, almost razor-like sound. And that's the sound world with which you will be entering this piece. As it goes on, you'll hear that she has a very fascinating way of writing for the orchestra and finding new colors for the orchestra. And I, I found myself hearing a sound and then trying to figure out where, where is it coming from? Where, where is this creative thing that, that she has written? Also, one thing that I noticed about it is when she's highlighting a certain section, say the clarinet section, it's also very busy elsewhere in the orchestra. And she writes an accompaniment section that is nearly as interesting as the, the main part, the, the more louder part that you hear. It's also a piece which is characterized by very sudden dynamic changes, sometimes from, from measure to measure. And it's a whole work that just... Um, it just leaps off the page, and that's the impression that I got last night. It lasts about 20, 25 minutes or so, and coincidentally is about the same length as the final piece on the program, which is Debussy's La Mer. So Debussy wrote this piece between 1903 and 1905, and he was long fascinated by the sea and by large bodies of water. And this happened from when he was a, a child, when his family used to take vacations in Cannes in the south of France, long before the famous film festival uh, moved in there. Debussy's parents had hoped that he would become a sailor in the French Navy, but as Debussy wrote to one of his friends that he, quote, deviated from that path thanks to the quirks of fate. Even so, I have retained a sincere devotion to the sea. Oddly, though, he almost never visited the sea in his adult life. He did, though, say that the memory of the sea to him was more important than the reality of it, the reality of seeing it. And thus, he said he had no trouble writing this piece which evoked the sea from his home in Burgundy, which is about 300 miles from any close, large body of water. Debussy was also inspired by two famous painters from the early uh, 1800s, one of which was the British painter J.M.W. Turner. If you know some of Turner's paintings, he had these very um, uh, forward-thinking landscapes, these seascapes that uh, were very much ahead of their time. The other was a Japanese painter named Hokusai, who lived from 1760 to 1849. Hokusai did a painting which is called The Great Wave of Kanagawa. That ended up being his most famous painting. Debussy loved 
that image. In fact, he had a copy of it in his house. He also insisted with the publisher that that be the image that's on the first edition of the score. And indeed, the publisher did honor his request. Debussy was one of those composers never much interested in tradition or traditional genres like the symphony or the concerto. In fact, he has no works in his entire output with either the name symphony or concerto in the title. However, you could almost say that the closest he came to writing a symphony is this work, is La Mer. It's in three separate movements, all of which are connected thematically. He does, though, have the subtitle, which is called Three Symphonic Sketches. That word sketch is actually an unusual word to write for uh, an orchestral work, for a completed orchestral work, because you know sketch can be a practice before the real thing. But as the writer Byron Adams points out, he says it could also be a clearly delineated line drawing. And seeing all the detail in this work is very likely that that's the meaning of sketch that Debussy used in this piece. Even from his student days, Debussy was also an experimenter in sound and in harmonies. And he would confound his professors. One time his professor asked, well, what, what are your harmonic choices? here, and Debussy just simply answered, it's my own pleasure. So over the past century or so, Debussy's works have actually confounded music theorists trying to analyze, well, what really is going on here? Trying to put in definitions for what he does here and trying to fit it into these um, pre-made pigeonholes, but it really doesn't always work with Debussy. Debussy, for his part, would have it no other way. In fact, he said this, we must agree that the beauty of a work of art will always remain a mystery. In other words, we can never be absolutely sure how it's made. Coincidentally, just like the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, the novelty and the difficulty of La Mer made it not very well received at all at its premiere and actually with the orchestra itself. The orchestra was a bit stumped by the difficulty of it. So much so that after the first rehearsal, the violinists tied white handkerchiefs to their bows in a sign of surrender that they gave up trying to figure out how to play this piece. So the reviews for the first performance were not very good at all. And one reviewer said, I do not hear, I do not see, and I do not feel the sea. Other reviewers criticized Debussy's depiction of the sea, calling it an, uh, just simply agitated water in a saucer. <laughs> and another one called it not the sea, but a pond full of frogs. So, however, when Debussy first conducted the piece in 1908, it actually was successful. And since then, it has become one of his most popular pieces. So both this piece and the Tchaikovsky on the first half had pretty much the same trajectory. It had a very, very rough first performance, but within a year or two, it had become standard fare. And both of these pieces have never left the repertoire once they entered it. First movement is called From Dawn Until Noon at the Sea. The music begins very quietly, but Debussy starts with one main idea that he takes through the whole piece. Here it is. That's it. So it's just, it's just those two notes. And then after that, shortly after this, the oboe comes in with a variation of that. 
and then it's reversed. So either two notes up, two notes down. And amazingly, that's just about all Debussy needs to create these three movements. And there's a few other ideas as well. Now here, for example, is one of them just a few minutes in, and you'll hear another important line for the cellos and the flutes. As things start to build up and develop, you'll notice that there's this constant sense of motion happening. And it's not just because he's trying to depict the sea here, which does have that as a characteristic, of course, but you do find that in many of his pieces as well. In La Mer, there's almost no place where the music is static, even if it's very quiet. And when he has ideas that come back, like that two-note motive, which I'll play some examples for you how that develops, it's always different. This is in contrast to composers from the Baroque, classical, romantic era, because when you have a melody, for example, in the Tchaikovsky that you hear on the first half, when the melody returns, it's either exactly the same or it's recognizable from the beginning. Here in Debussy's music, there's this constant state of flux and transformation that's going on. For example, here's something about five minutes in. You'll hear that two-note motive that I just played for you, and also a reference to the flute melody that's from the, that first excerpt. Debussy here very cleverly divides the cello section, and I think there's 12 who's playing today, into four different parts. This creates a whole new sound world that composers had not come up with before. It's divi dividing a single section, like the cello section, into so many little parts. So here's where that comes in. And the movement builds up to a huge climax, again, always with these themes transformed. Now, while Debussy called this piece from dawn until noon on the sea, he didn't really mean it exactly chronologically from dawn, although you get the little beginnings of sunlight and uh, to have it um, very strict all the way throughout. But that didn't stop Eric Satie, one of his contemporary composers, from sarcastically commenting, that, well, he didn't really like the work, but I did like the bit at quarter to 11. <laughs> the second movement is the shortest of all. It's called Play of the Waves. It lasts about six minutes. It's not that much shorter than the other, the outer movements, which are about eight minutes each. This one is in a continuous fast tempo, but with 
frequent, subtle, retard, slowing downs, and um, accelerandos of the tempo just speeding up. Also, with few exceptions, even though this is a fast movie, it's played almost entirely at a soft, dynamic level. And like we heard in the first movement, this is music which is just constantly brimming with activity, with one idea after another, just constantly being thrown about the orchestra. So here's an example from towards the beginning. part of it just a little bit later on. Again, this quick moving but soft action. You'll also hear that two-note motive that I play for you. It returns. This is one of the louder sections of the movement. Years ago, I attended a festival in Canada where the artistic director was Pierre Boulez, and he conducted a wild program one evening, and it was the complete ballet, The Miraculous Mandarin by Bartok, La Mer, Intermission, after Intermission, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Now, the Bartok and the Stravinsky are notoriously difficult pieces for the orchestra, but at one of the breaks in the rehearsal, a few of us were talking to Maestro Boulez, and he revealed something very interesting. He said, of this program, the hardest thing of all of it was the second movement of La Mer. And he said that because there is a subtlety of this piece with the quick moving action, things moving very quickly from one thing to another, the subtlety of dynamics, the razor sharp precision that you need, also the subtle accelerandos and retards that Debussy th threw in that made it the most difficult. You have to work really, really hard to make this piece sound absolutely seamless. And that is the challenge of playing the second movement, actually all of La Mer, and you certainly won't hear any trouble to, uh, this afternoon when you hear the performance, but it's actually quite a, a difficult piece, and you understand why the violinist put uh, white handkerchiefs on their bows after the first rehearsal because it was uh, very complicated for someone who had never played it before. Final movement is called Dialogue of the Wind and the Sea, begins rather ominously with a depiction of the unsettled sea, like a storm at sea. And again, same rules apply, quick action moving from one thing to another. And here's an excerpt about two minutes in. Again, the two-note motive comes in, but you'll hear it presented differently than all the other times before. There it is. 
again. Eventually the music becomes faster and faster. And here's the part towards the end of it. And again, listen for the constant transformation. And again, the two note motive. Hear it in the strings. one more time as the excerpt was fading out. It's only about a minute left of this excerpt and, or of the piece itself and the music continually gets faster but also becomes much, much more majestic and brings the piece to a just triumphant and exuberant finish. And that'll bring the concert to a triumphant and exuberant finish and brings Upbeat Live today to a finish. So I want to thank you all very much for coming. Enjoy the concert.